0: Welcome to New Idea Live, uh, the podcast of the Ironwood Institute. Uh, my name is Zimot Gawin. I'm a junior fellow at the Institute. Um, today, I'm joined by Scott McDonald, assistant director of the Center for the Strategic Study at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Um, Scott is an expert in political systems and theories and international security studies. Uh, he focuses uh, on current foreign policy uh of the People's Republic of China uh Scott hi w- uh welcome
1: hello thanks for having me
0: yeah I'm so excited that you are here it's like your probably third interview for new ideal life um well before we start there are two disclaimers so one disclaimer is that Scott speaks only for himself and not for any centers that he works for is that correct
1: that's correct. My my own opinions is what I'll be giving you today.
0: Great, great. And another disclaimer is for our viewers, our audience. So it's a pre-recorded episode. So if you do not donate anything via super chats, uh, we are very grateful for that. But please keep in mind, it will not be able to provide a live response. So today we want to talk about uh the relationships between the u.s and china people's republic of, of uh, china uh the u.s foreign policy uh the prc's uh, foreign policy about taiwan or uh, from more a philosophical perspective or at least some philosophical angles uh because there's there's it seems like there's a lot of going on recently Uh, Some people even say there's some kind of a cold war uh, between the U.S. and the PRC. Um, And so that is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Scott. Um, So let's start with the fact that in June this year, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, visited the People's Republic of China and he met with the top officials, including Xi Jinping. Uh, now it's interesting because it's, 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 the first, he's the first, uh, US secretary of state to visit China since, since 2018. Uh, now one of the things that he said during a press conference, uh, back in China is that both the US and PRC agreed to work on stability in their relationships and it's something that i think blinken uh repeated later in july that basically saying that the us is working on communication with china so it sounds like uh they they want to have better relations with with china and so my first question as a as a star what do you think about Blinken's visit? Uh, was it was it was it important and how what can it what does it say about current relations between the U.S. and the BRC? Uh, so last time we interviewed you, it was November 2022. It was after Nancy Pelosi's controversial trip to Taiwan. Has a lot changed since?
1: Okay. Well, There's a couple questions there. Uh, let's start with uh, the Blinken visit. Was it important? Um, yes, but not for the reasons that are portrayed in the media, right? Uh, it was important mm-hmm. because it confirmed that the U.S. feels it needs the PRC more than the PRC the, the U- needs the U.S. and that it's willing to come groveling to Beijing for improved relations. Uh, what does improved means? Mm, not antagonistic. I don't know it didn't seem to to turn out that way blink it said stable is it stable are we moving stable um why does the west think that the prc wants this why does it think that by proving to beijing that we are needy that they will be dissuaded from making the relationship antagonistic or continuing that Uh, i think all this visit did was give the prc a win in its size you know what did the us Mm. get out of it that is not going to help the US much, right? I mean, and this is not the only one. Remember uh, Yellen, uh, US Secretary of Treasury, went not long after, then Kerry went, and now the um, Secretary of Commerce um, is scheduled to go in the near future. So it's happening over and over again, uh, but it's not getting anything, right? In fact, I think Kerry was, was basically given the cold shoulder and, and Yellen didn't get anything either. Um, but remember, from a philosophical perspective, the CCP sees the international system as properly a moral hierarchy, right? They desire to be and believe they are rightfully at the top of that hierarchy within their system and within their, their thought construct. This visit, this series of visits just serve to reinforce that, right? People have to come to us mm-hmm. and we will give what we choose to give and withhold um, what we don't want to give. Uh, You mentioned that one of the ways that uh, foreign states try to get better relationships with PRC, one thing they hope for is communication, right? And we've heard this over and over again. The ability to pick up the phone and call Xi Jinping when there's trouble. The Philippines has been investing in this kind of diplomacy recently. Um, Just this past week, there has been scuffles and water cannons down in the South China Sea uh, around where the Philippines has a ship that's grounded on a reef, and uh, one of the things they did is they tried to pick up that phone that they have now and call the PRC. And as normally happens in a situation like this, it rang and nobody picked up because the PRC only talks when they feel they have something to gain from it. So I think these visits have, have not had desired impact from the US perspective. From the PRC perspective, they've been minor, but they've reinforced their perception of
0: their role they're in charge of this relationship yeah we will get back to that to to this relationship but also to uh the your assessment of u.s foreign policy towards uh china but now i wanted to talk about taiwan um from 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 china's uh perspective so so China, the, the People's uh, Republic of China, sees Taiwan, which is the Republic of China, uh, they basically they they do not recognize Taiwan as an as an independent country, and we know that Xi Jinping, that, that one of the main goals of Xi Jinping is the what they call reunification. Uh, although I remember from other interviews with you that reunifications not really reunification from the perspective of Taiwan. But nonetheless, this is how the People's Republic of China uh, sees that. Um, And so let me give you one of million quotes that I have found uh, from Xi Jinping. So in in, uh, October 2022, he said, quote, resolving the Taiwan question and realizing China's complete reunification is for the party, a historic mission and an unshakable commitment. It is also a shared aspiration for all the sons and daughters of the Chinese nation and a natural requirement for realizing the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And so here I have a couple of questions. So the first is, why is Taiwan so important to China? Now I've heard from some experts that it's because of, of growing Chinese nationalism. Uh, but some people say that it's more about the geostrategic importance of the island. Uh, some say it's because of the semiconductor and chip industry in Taiwan. So, or maybe, maybe it's something else, so could you please help us understand uh, why is Taiwan really important for the PRC?
1: Sure. Um, first and foremost, Taiwan is important because the Chinese Communist Party has based their legitimacy on their role as the leadership that will restore China to its proper place. Right. Uh, the quote that that you just read off speaks to that directly. You know, the party is responsible for the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. They have explicitly defined part of that as regaining. Uh, all these lost territories, and they, so they have explicitly defined Taiwan as one of these lost territories that must be brought back in order for the rejuvenation to be complete, okay? Um, th- frankly, this was poor decision-making on their part, I think. Uh, you know, they understood back uh, post-cultural revolution and post-Tiananmen that communism was, was a dead letter, right? This is no longer useful at, for uh, legitimizing our rule, and we need something else. And part of it was the uh, you know economic success, but an even more important part of it was the party's role as the natural leader that makes China great. And frankly, the economic was part of that, right? Because if um, everything is harmonious under heaven, if the government does its job, that leads to to economic growth. Um, but they were you know post uh, civil war upset that Chiang Kai-shek had fled there. It means they never really got closure. They never really ended that civil war and it became an important issue then to get Taiwan. A couple years before, back before World War II was over in uh, Yan'an, the communist uh, outpost in Northern China, um, Mao said to, to an American diplomat, no, we don't need Taiwan, but what do I want that for? It's not important. Uh, but it became important because Chiang Kai-shek was there, right? Um, mm. And so they, they felt like they had to go and, and get that and kick him off and make it part of China, even though, as you pointed out, historically, Taiwan, not part of China, right? Only for a brief period under the Qing, uh, you know, a a foreign dynasty, right? Uh, They took it unwillingly because the pirates there were bothering them and, you know, very happily gave it away to the, I'm hyperbole there. I probably shouldn't say very happily. They gave it away to the Chinese uh, post the Sino-Japanese war. Um, So you know, there's a little bit of uh, a historical make-believe going on in the PRC's claim uh, that uh, even a cursory issue will, will lay bare. Um, but remember, philosophically, uh, this is now part of their claim, their moral claim, right, to the position of leadership within China. And so they cannot let it go. They can't just say, oops, yeah, it really wasn't that important. And then they've made it worse by whipping up nationalism in support of that, right? So you said, is it nationalism or is it something else? Well, the nationalism that they whipped up uh, to some extent in support of that. It wasn't that hard, right? The kind of the, there is an underlying proud nationalist strain that, that exists there in the PRC. But anyway, so geopolitical angle here. Um, is that owning Taiwan would actually improve their position, uh, you know, geopolitically and influence over the Western Pacific. Um, pushes them out; they're no longer trapped within the First Island Chain. Airfields go out. There's deep water port on the east coast. Subs could go right out. Um, however, you know, it's probably more important that it would you know, remove U.S. influence, right? The United States having a strong influence over Taiwan upsets the hierarchy. If Beijing is supposed to be on top and others are supposed to give appropriate deference, Taiwan turning its head towards the U.S. instead of towards Beijing is a moral problem that they must solve. Right. So uh, that relationship there suggests an alternative authority. You can't have an alternative authority. It suggests more than one emperor, or more than one emperor is bad. One of them must be gotten rid of or at least booted out of the region here.
0: Yeah, so I have one quick follow-up question to the issue of nationalism. Mm-hmm. So you said there is some part of that that is operating, right? Um but is isn't because I remember so uh Ilan interviewed you some time ago. A uh, link to that uh, interview will be in the in the uh, description below. Uh, but one of the things that, that you said that is powerful is that their principle um, that they follow is more power for the party. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, in the context of this Chinese nationalism, is it purely instrument, 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 instrumental here? Or is it something that they truly believe? Or is it more that the Chinese society uh, starts to believe in?
1: Well, there is pride uh, in the Chinese nation, right? They're taught from a very young age about the 5,000 years of cultural history, uh, the great accomplishments of, of China. And so there, there is some pride there, uh, I, I don't deny that but from a government perspective, right? From the ruling party perspective, it's instrumental. And you can see over the years how they've attempted to dial it up and down depending on how it will benefit them, right? Um, the, The US mistakenly bombs the PRC embassy in Bosnia. They dial up the nationalism and crowds of protesters show up at the US embassy in Beijing they decide those protests are going too far, they shut them down and uh, they they try to, to maintain it at a level that works for them because nationalism can be dangerous for uh, a single party rule, right? If people get too whipped up about how great the Chinese nation is and they think that there's something holding them back and they turn and they say, oh, it's the party guys that are holding us back, that could be dangerous as well. So they're aware of that danger and they, they try to you know, use a thermostat, uh, through the press, the various media announcements to try to keep things within a certain range. So yes, both, I think is part of that answer. Yes, it exists, but the party is very interested in how it can use it instrumentally while not letting it get out of control.
0: I see. I see. Uh, yeah, that, that I think makes sense. So now I want to move to although it is it will be related to the issue of uh, Taiwan, but I want to move to to Russia actually. I so in February 2022, before the invasion of Ukraine, uh there was a meeting. Uh most or or even all of the experts say that it was a very important meeting. So Xi Jinping and Putin uh met in Beijing. It was uh before the uh, Olympic. N- now, basically, the in- typical interpretation of this meeting is that it was to show the U.S. and other Western countries uh, that the P.R.C. in Russia are basically together and will support each other. Now, some even say, and of course, we we probably don't know if it's if it's uh, true that Putin sought She's approval to attack Ukraine. Um, So, I want to talk a little bit about the PRC's relations with Russia, because on on the one hand, Russia appears to be the PRC's ally. Uh, And so, the war in Ukraine, which so far is a complete fiasco, weakens Russia. But I've heard some experts say. That is even better for the PRC because this way Russia will be less like an equal partner and more like a vassal. Um, on top of that, some people argue that the US is focusing on Europe and Russia now uh, and not on East Asia, which is good for the PRC, right? So some experts say, uh, no, the American eyes are more on Ukraine, not on, uh, Taiwan. Um, Well, on the other hand, if Russia cannot win with Ukraine militarily, it kind of indicates that the PRC might not win with Taiwan this way uh, if they wanted to do it this way, which is problematic for for them, I would guess. So my question, or a bunch of questions, is how do you think that the Chinese officials view the war in Ukraine? And what do you think? What what do they think is in their interest? Russia's total victory, partial victory, or maybe they would like Russia to lose the war? Um, Yeah. Well, um, so to
1: begin with, I don't think that Putin is going to be anyone's vassal, right? I'm not an Mm. expert on Russia, but I don't think being a vassal of Xi Jinping is where he sees himself going. And regardless of his actual power capabilities, it doesn't strike me as the way he's going to choose to behave. Um, so I think that particular argument's overblown a little bit. Um, is Russia weaker because of what has happened there? Absolutely. They were already a lot weaker than than probably even Putin thought he was, right? But, um, and, and already in a bit of a, Subordinate is not the right word, I don't think. Uh, but um, uh, the the lesser uh, power in that in that relationship, right? Obviously, their military might is down. Their economy has some issues. It's all resource extraction, and you know some people won't buy from them. The PRC will. So there are certainly some play- senses in which it's the junior partner. Um, but the war itself. Um, First of all, I think the PRC was excited that it might distract the U.S. and the U.S. would get very bogged down in that side of the world and give it more of a free hand. I actually do not think that has happened. Um, The the U.S. has tried very hard to remain uh, engaged uh, around the world, uh, including in East Asia during the Ukraine event, um, the Ukraine war. Um, In fact, There have been several big moves and support given to Taiwan during this time. So I think, oops, that didn't work out quite as well as we hoped, right? Um, As you alluded to, uh, it certainly calls into question the forces and the tactics that the PRC has, um, many of which are either based on or similar to uh Soviet and Russian designs which are being uh used in in the Ukraine affair so that certainly calls that into into question uh regarding the relationship with Putin they've certainly kind of tied themselves to this wounded patient now right who is certainly having some issues and they're they're backing him and they've said they'll back him and they're in a position of continuing to support him while uh, you know, many of the countries that they, they hope to to woo and, and convince that, that they are a, uh, a valuable international partner are now like, yeah, this, this Putin guy's kind of a jerk and you're hanging out with him. Yes, there are parts uh, of the world that, that are sticking or uh, maybe not sticking with Russia, but refusing to go along with those opposing him. But, you know, they were already kind of pro-PRC anyway. So um, I don't think they've actually gained there. Uh, regarding Taiwan specifically, I think um, Ukraine has actually uh, reinforced the idea on Taiwan that one, we we need to defend ourselves, right? That we, me, you know, Joe on the street, defending Taiwan is important to me because someone might try to come. And two, we could win this thing. Now, I, I personally, um, We spent a lot of time looking at Taiwan and the military problem. Uh, I think that it is a very hard challenge for the PRC. Uh, There has been concern Mm -hmm. that the average Mm -hmm. person in Taiwan had a little bit more of a defeatist attitude. Um, And certainly some Western commentators used to have a fairly defeatist attitude. I think Ukraine showed people in Taiwan, we can do this, right? If they come, we can beat them back. And so that's absolutely not good for, for Xi Jinping
0: yeah and and that is exactly related to my next question uh, and that is why I also uh, brought up the um, the war in Ukraine. Uh, so we know that most Taiwanese people do not want that reunification uh, with the P or C. Um, as far as I know, only about two percent of Taiwanese people identify themselves as just Chinese right? most are taiwanese chinese or just taiwanese um so if the prc knows that it's problematic for them to uh win taiwan militarily uh how do you think the prc will try to reunify reunify uh with taiwan because it seems like soft power wouldn't really work uh, I don't even know what that would mean in this context. Uh, the same applies to economic uh, incentives. So is military conquest really possible? And here before you answer those questions, so you 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 also study uh, classic Chinese philosophy and 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 I've heard from other experts that the Chinese official officials really take Sun Tzu seriously. Um, and and one of the things uh, that they allegedly uh, uh, took to their hearts is that you already lost if you had to use military conquest. So I so I'm also I'm also curious is whether that's correct and whether they really uh, study Sun Tzu like seriously uh, in the party. So um,
1: to say you have to use force you've already lost is probably stretching Sun Tzu a bit. Uh, the the mm. famous quote is that uh, to win without fighting is the, uh, the epitome of the military military, right? Um, and that actually speaks to how I think the PRC will attempt to take Taiwan, um, which is not by force, but by leveraging uh, sure or situational potential um understanding that in any situation there is a natural course of development that is likely to follow right this is from the, the chinese classical philosophical perspective um that and so what you want to do is understanding the potential for change and then nurture that situation to help it move in the direction you want um kind of speaking to what you said forcing it tends to cause negative externalities right bad things tend to happen when you use force so we try to do it without. We tried to establish the conditions so that one day um, Taiwan will see that its best option is to return to the motherland uh, from the PRC's perspective. Um, So how does one do this, right? (laughs) How does one actually nurture that situation? Um, The PRC has believed, and and were very active, especially in the, um, the 1980s and 90s, in thinking that simply by demonstrating the benefits of closer cooperation, making business opportunities possible, um, helping uh, Taiwan get rich and seeing that the PRC is the route to riches, um, that this would naturally lead them to want to come back, right? Partly because they thought people there wanted to come back, which as um, the survey results that you're uh, alluded to, which is a a longitudinal survey that National Chengdu University in Taiwan does every year, and has shown a steady move um, away from people self identifying themselves as Chinese to increasingly being Taiwanese. Um, So that puts their the PRC's plan at risk. Absolutely, right? We want them to want to come back. Um, If they think there's something different, what do we do? So, the PRC has tried very actively to increase linkages and increase um, uh, interaction. They think that's going to help. Um, see the flurry of activity in 2008 uh, and, and the several years after that, uh, when President Ma ying who was more inclined, President Ma ying of Taiwan, who was more inclined to uh, to to establish linkages uh, from his perspective for the good of the economy because the PRC needed, I'm sorry Taiwan needed a good economy so that people would be happy so he could continue to be elected but from the PRC perspective that these linkages would help bring Taiwan naturally closer and they would realize the benefits of coming back. Um, force they tend to try to avoid but sometimes you know force is necessary if things are straying too far maybe a little bit of force might nudge him back. And that's why you see uh, things like the um, uh, the missile exercises in 1996 um, to after the president at the time um, spoke at Cornell and the PRC was very unhappy. Interestingly enough, from a Western perspective, we generally see that as a horrible mistake on the PRC's part because it um, it just caused uh, President Lee dong to get reelected and increased feeling of separateness on the island, uh, commentators in the PRC often see that as successful because it prevented Taiwan from actually going towards de jure independence at the time. Right? So uh, while they're trying to manage the situation and manage the potential, they might not be seeing it accurately, right? Which of course is a concern because misconceptions often lead to war, right? That's how wars happen more often than not. Um, So I think that the PRC is still trying to go that way. They're still trying to develop the situation, uh, including trying to push the US out of the region, right? Establishing Mm -hmm. an alternate hierarchy, establishing alternate international institutions, demonstrating to the region that their future lies with the PRC. Part of that whole mission is to convince them that the United States is not the appropriate authority for the region. Um, and, you know, PRC um, diplomats and political leaders you know, will quite often say Asia for Asians, Asia led by Asians, outside parties should not be interfering. Right? This is all designed to push the US out of the region more broadly because of the, the proper role of a moral hierarchy in the you know, philosophy that they hold. Um, but, and specifically, because it impacts places like Taiwan.
0: Mm-hmm. But so I have one follow up question to this. So what, what do you think is the probability that they will, uh, in any way, convince Taiwan to, to join because the current trends show that that won't really happen or am I wrong?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen. Uh, so this is, this is the crux, right? Um, the PRC does not want to go to war over Taiwan. Okay. Uh, I, I personally think they realize it's a bad idea right now, but they want it back. The problem for them is Taiwan's not coming back short of war. So at what point do they realize it's never coming back? And what do they decide to do Mm -hmm. from my perspective? The smart thing for the party to do is to start laying the groundwork now for giving up Taiwan in 50, 70 years, right? That, and if you go back and you look at the way that the party leaders have dealt with bad bad news and policy shifts, they start early with laying little nuggets, right? That allows them to make a shift. They make something up, right? May <laughs> they, they come up with a reason why uh, certain things aren't aren't good. Um, famously, Mao had Edgar Snow stand on top of Tiananmen Gate with him as a signal to the people that things might be changing to prepare the company. That, I'm sorry, to prepare the country for his eventual opening to Nixon. Right, very small little thing that was that was missed in the West, but seen as important there. So taking small actions now to distance themselves from Taiwan, I personally think would be wise for the party. I'm not saying they're going to do it, Um, but uh, it would be beneficial to them because this place is not coming back short of war and a war is a tremendous risk to the party's power. And they don't want to lose power. So the reason it's a risk to their power is because they've staked the legitimacy on it and they said, we're going to do this. And that war is more than likely going to fail to achieve their ultimate objective of, of seizing Taiwan. Um, and even if they can get some intermediate objective and claim success, it's going to tear things up uh, politically, economically, socially, in a way that, that could absolutely undermine and threaten the party's position. So they need to find a way out of this situation.
0: Okay, great. Um, so, I mean, great, because uh, <laughs> it
1: could be very ungrate. Yes. It could be very nasty for a lot of people. Um, so.
0: Um, okay. So now, uh, so before we move to, to the United States and their foreign policy, their views on Taiwan, I wanted to ask, uh, one general question about PRC's foreign policy. So Again, I will refer to the other experts that I've been listening to. And I very often hear that, the uh, Chinese officials, they land their actions in 2030, even 100, 100 years, because it's nothing, uh, if you compare 100 years to their very long history of their civilization, um, and my question is, how would you generally characterize their foreign policy, what is their principle? Is it whatever furthers the party's power or is it some sort of pragmatism like in America or maybe something else?
1: So, uh, first of all, I think that from the, uh, the the perspective of the party that they do have more time right? As long as they can maintain the hold on power, that things don't have to happen tomorrow, but they need to happen. And partly, you know, I I, I discussed about the nature of existence as they see it and the need to develop a situation and nurture potential that reinforces a long-term view, right? That you have to intervene early and take your time in order to get the best results. So. I have uh, spent a, a good part of the last couple of decades looking at and attempting to understand the PRC and its foreign policy, and what I've concluded is that the way that they conduct foreign policy is is often quite different from the way that uh, we do in the United States. Partly because they see the world differently, right? Uh, or as Rand said, because we all have a philosophy, right? Um, we all have different ways of answering those questions. Where am I? How do I know it? And what should I do? And the way that you answer those questions is going to influence the way you understand the world, You know, see reason and the knowledge is ethical uh, and and how you should act. And so I, so I mentioned earlier that I think that the, the thought system in the PRC is still heavily influenced by classical chinese philosophy. So, I've spent a lot of time going back and digging into the philosophy and trying to figure out what someone who understands this what they will draw out of it vis-a-vis foreign relations and, and conducting foreign policy. And you know, as a caveat, classical chinese philosophy doesn't talk about foreign relations, right? Uh, even when you get into politics, uh, you know, applied ethics, it's it's about china because the world is China. The emperor rules all under heaven, right? Um, and so what you need to do is extrapolate those philosophical principles out to how you view the world to understand how you act in it. And from doing this, I, I've extracted what I think are four principles that help me understand what the PRC is doing. The first of which I've alluded to several times, and including in how I started answering this question, and that is potential, right? The, um, the Chinese character, sure. This understanding that in any situation, there is a, um, a potential to develop in a certain way. And understanding that change that's going to occur helps you understand existence, but also points directions at how to deal with existence, um, how to nurture that situation in a way that suits you. Um, you know, the story I often tell is one told by Menxius about the old man uh, pulling corn. Uh, the old man from Song saw that his corn wasn't growing, so he tried to yank up on it to help it. He killed it, right? Because you don't help corn grow by forcing it. You help it grow by giving it proper soil and water and sunlight to nurture it towards its natural potential. And so what do I need to do then to nurture Taiwan so that it wants to come back, right? That's why I answered that question the way I did, is because these underlying philosophical principles. And that's the first one, uh, potential. The second one that I think is important comes directly from Taoism. And that is emptiness. Um, the this idea is that you know we have I'm surrounded by four walls and a ceiling. That gives shape to the room, but it does not define its utility. Its utility is the emptiness inside, okay. and um, that leads to a, a couple conclusions. Right. First of all, is this idea that things naturally tend towards the empty uh, or the weak? And so, um, water, for example will naturally flow down and fill in a cavity uh, in in the ground. So if I want the water to go a certain direction, what do I need to do? I need to act early upstream where I can change the course of it simply and get it to flow to a different cavity, but it's naturally gonna flow down. Uh, Another conclusion to draw from this is what does space mean, right? And, And when we talk geopolitically, then what does territory mean? What do borders mean, right? Um, and if you look at something like when, uh, several years ago, the DF 21 Delta, it's called the, the carrier killer, right? The maneuverable warhead on a ballistic missile. And this became a big topic in the security press. And we wrote reams and reams and reams of paper on how to stop this missile system and this missile system drew a line in the ocean. It drew a wall and we were focused, hyper-focused on that wall. But from a classical Chinese perspective, the wall just defines the area of emptiness that now has value. So what's going on behind the wall? Stop worrying about the wall. Stop worrying about the missile system. Yeah, you have to defeat it and get by it, right? But you spend all this time focusing on that, you miss what's going on inside. And I, I give the analogy of the South China Sea where, yeah, they're building some outposts, but what's actually going on inside? they're building sovereignty, right? So understanding the value of emptiness. When they're attempting to uh, fly sorties and sail ships around Taiwan, what are they doing? We're focused on the patterns and the um, the lines drawn by those ships. How are they trying to influence what's going on inside? What's the change that they want to happen in Taiwan? That's where to focus, right? The next is names. Um, within uh, Chinese philosophy, um, epistemologically, names are very interesting. On the one hand, they're fungible, right? The, you know, you can change the name of something and that the Daoists are very concerned that if you say the name, you're missing something. But everything is defined relationally, right? For both the, the Taoists and the Confucians. Relationships matter and they determine uh, meaning and ultimately form, right? So the Confucians tell you, tell you it's very important to use the correct name, because if you use the wrong name, you're going to behave differently towards the object, and we see in uh, Chinese foreign policy how concerned they are with making sure that people use the correct names, right? So that Taiwan is a province that is not independent. That Marriott Hotels does not list it as a country on their website, right? Um, that the uh, sea in the South China Sea is territorial waters which is contrary to UNCLOS, the treaty they have signed, but they keep reinforcing that because if people use those names, they'll behave the way one's supposed to behave towards territorial waters in the South China Sea is the thought, right? So I'm also calling people a name, right? You mentioned the Cold War earlier. That's Cold War thinking, you hear that a lot. Nobody wants another Cold War But if I call what you say cold war thinking, you're gonna recoil, oh, uh, maybe that's not what I meant. I didn't wanna be a cold warrior, right? So using names to shape the way people think about themselves, the way they think about the PRC, the way they think about norms and standards. And the fourth principle is hierarchy. Within um, classical Chinese philosophy and explicitly Confucianism, the proper social order is defined as a hierarchy people are in a certain position based on a web of interrelationships that define their place and their role vis-a-vis others. And this hierarchy ultimately ends at the emperor up on top, the son of heaven, who is responsible for ensuring that all under heaven is harmonious, right? And this is not just, hey, look, hierarchy, good, I got the power. No, this is moral, right? From the classical Chinese perspective, this is a moral society one that is ruled in this fashion and so they think that it is not just advantageous or pragmatic but that it is moral that they set up a regional and broader hierarchy with them at the center because sitting in beijing the cosmological center of the uh, of the world and also being more moral and understanding how to live morally than the rest of us they think they should normally be at the, naturally rather be at the center so by these principles that uh can be drawn out of classical chinese philosophy of potential emptiness names and hierarchy i think if you look at chinese actions in a, in a foreign policy sphere through the lens of these Four philosophical principles, it gives you a lot of insight into why they behave the way they do, why they're willing to wait 50 years, right? Because the pot- they have to wait for the situational potential to develop. They have to get themselves at the top of that moral hierarchy so that people behave appropriately towards them, so that the United States behaves appropriately towards them, so Taiwan behaves ap- appropriately towards them. There's a series of things you do to set the international environment in motion and get it to where it needs to be. And that implies that there's going to be some time involved.
0: So it's really fascinating and I have to ask you two questions. So one question is how do those four principles are operating within the party and their goal to stay in power? Is it a meta principle to stay in power, but it's using those four philosophical principles? or is it something else?
1: So the the party is the party in power, right? They went through a lot of trouble to do this. And they did this because they think they know how to do it best, right? We're the ones who know how to rule China, right? And how do we rule China? Huh, let me think about that, right? What do I know about running uh, a country? Well, what do I know about the world? How does the world work? How do I behave, right? And so when they go to actually implement this, what they fall back on is where, where do they derive their governing tactics, techniques, and procedures from? Well, from their underlying moral premises, their underlying philosophical premises. And so I think that the party wants to stay in power, first of all, because, well, that's what we're here for. But then second of all, I think there are plenty of true believers there, not in communism, but in the fact that they are the only people who can do this and the appropriate way to do this is how well it's by establishing this moral hierarchy in which everybody will know the proper way to behave because if everybody knows their place and they behave in accordance with their position in society. We will have harmony. We will have, um, you know, successful governance and things will be right with the world. So I think that there's, there's a mix going on there but it's because you see the world through the lens of the premises you hold, right? You know, I I, I like to say, uh, especially when speaking to to non-objectivists, a lot of your audience are objectivists, so they understand how Rand gets to this point, right? But I like to tell others, well, look, we all have a philosophy. Some of us studied it very carefully, but some of us get it through our teachers, preachers, parents, and peers. And in China, If you talk to anybody, right, whether you're studying it carefully or not, the philosophy that you're going to absorb is based on these ideas that come from the, the syncretic blend of Taoism and Confucianism that has ruled that country and informed the lives of its populace for two millennia.
0: Okay. Uh, so that was, uh, the part of our interview, more about China. Now I want to, we need to move on, uh, to to the U S so, uh, and its relations with China. So, so China, the PRC is the second largest economy in the world. And after Russia's failure, basically in Ukraine, they are probably also the second most powerful military in the world. So let me ask you a very straightforward question. Should China be viewed as an enemy of the U.S., as some people, especially on the right, say? Um, my
1: personal view on this Remember, I was involved, uh, directly in foreign policy for several years when the United States has gone out of its way to explicitly not name enemies. Um sometimes uh, after 9-11, for example, probably to our detriment, right, of not actually identifying the enemy. Um, That being said, the United States, for some good reasons, I think, does not seek out enemies, right? We're not looking to label people enemies around the world. We want to have a free and open exchange with as many people as possible. Um, Moreover, the government should not be restricting the rights of Individual American citizens uh, to trade or interact with whom they wish, uh, without an objective and compelling national security threat. Um, obviously, uh, there are a few areas of technology that uh, I think that kind of restriction is appropriate today, vis-a-vis the PRC. Um, but uh, rather, rather than name them the enemy, just you know, handle the, the problems. Uh, I don't think that that the PRC is such a threat to the United States and its interests at this point that we need to rejigger our policy and our economy on facing facing off with them around the world. In fact, I think that U.S. policy over the last several years has been harmed by the fact that it is focused on countering China, right? Go back and look over headquarters, I'm sorry, uh, headlines over the past um, uh, five years, maybe 10, and see how many times you see articles about how to counter China, how to uh, oppose China, how to uh, react against Chinese doing this and that and that. Um, and the problem with that is that when you are constantly reacting to another country, you basically have a second-handed foreign policy because you are allowing them to determine when, where, and how you act because you're just acting in response to what they do, right? And the military, we say, well, you're ceding the initiative to them, but it's even worse because it's not just an action. You are cognitively ceding the initiative. You are allowing them to think for you. And, and that is dangerous in setting foreign policy. Um, so I think the, the move to say they are enemy and me is often synonymous with this counter 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 when. That's not what the United States needs to do. It needs to have a foreign policy that is pro-US and pursue that rather than um, then anti the PRC. Now, that being said, um, I think we do need to have our eyes wide open to the fact that the People's Republic of China decided a few decades ago that the United States is their enemy and they have been behaving as such, okay? Um, they, are, they actively think with the enemy and are taking actions to attempt to degrade the U.S. position uh, in certain areas of the world, diplomatically, informationally, militarily, and economically. Um, and we need to understand that and, and be clear that that is happening so that we do act appropriately and, of course, pr- protect ourselves. However, I think, frankly, this probably damaged the PRC more in the long run right? In the absence of kinetic hostilities, what the effect that that has had has been warping their policies to favor confrontation and subterfuge, where openness and cooperation on some of these issues probably would have contributed to their benefit more in the long run. So I I think their focus on we must, you know, counter (laughs) the United States, we must see them as an enemy and push them out has probably hurt them as well. The time may come when we have to say, yes, absolutely. Uh, they're, they're an enemy and, uh, and we need to actively resist them. But I don't think that time is here yet because frankly, I don't think on a day to day basis they actually pose that much of a direct threat to our existential interests.
0: Mm-hmm. So now we are going back to the issue of Taiwan again. So we have talked about Taiwan from the Chinese perspective now i want to talk a little bit about the american perspective on taiwan so some people argue that taiwan is important to the us uh again because of the semiconductor and chip industry there uh some people say and i've heard this phrase million of times now uh that taiwan is the american unsinkable aircraft carrier it's uh what General Mark Mark Arthur once said. And so what's your take on that? Is is sovereign Taiwan really in the U.S. interest? And if so, for what reasons? Sure. Um,
1: Let me let me preface this by saying uh, I I personally uh, have a great love of Taiwan and the Taiwan people. I've, I've spent many years there. I was just back there for three months doing some research, and I have many good friends there. and I want to see them survive and prosper. Um, Would would love to to come to their defense, right? That being said, um, I have a hard time making the argument that the US should send its soldiers to die for its continued independence, right? Is that really an existential interest of the United States? Is the United States going to be seriously harmed if it falls, does it require us to go to war? very hard to go there. Um, that being said, I think the US does derive great benefits from its relationship Taiwan as it is, and it would be a shame to see it go. Uh, moreover, a takeover of the island by the CCP would be disruptive um, and unnecessary, as, as well as being a win for the argument that might makes right, right, and that forces a legitimate way to settle disputes. And definitely, I'm not a fan of that. So I think it is in the UN tr- U.S. interest to take actions now, when there's not a war going on, uh, to ensure that the PRC invasion of Taiwan is unlikely to occur and likely to fail if it tries, which also makes it unlikely to occur, right? Um, So uh, I I think this is actually very achievable uh, based on what I've said already, uh, that we can help Taiwan now uh, and prepare to help Taiwan in the way that we're helping Ukraine without necessarily committing U.S. soldiers to die, which I'm not sure that us fighting a war over that is necessarily the right call. Um, so uh, philosophically, um, understanding how the PRC thinks about situational potential and um, how they derive strategy, um, I think that helps us understand the likelihood of an invasion, when it could happen, and to prepare for it so that it's prevented. Because understanding that, that they look at the situational potential and how a situa- situation is developing and towards what, we can help to shape the situation so that it does not look favorable for invasion. And so I think protecting Taiwan from invasion uh, is doable. And I think that's probably the right thing for the United States to do. Um, frankly, I think that the um, both the Trump and Biden administrations have tried to shift that way to some extent, uh, success on this often varies over time, but I think that's probably the right course uh, to follow with Taiwan.
0: Could you just concretize by giving one example, how would such support look like? Sure. Um,
1: First of all, uh, make it clear that it's gonna be too hard because too many people become involved. I'm fully in favor of continuing transits through the international waterway of the Taiwan Strait. Matter of fact, there have been too few for too long and it should happen more often by more countries. And I've been very heartened to see that happen over the last uh, few months with more countries doing it. That's a simple thing to do that shows the PRC that this is difficult. Um, Two, being willing to sell weaponry that is very good uh, for a defense of Taiwan. Um, we, have we've seen more of that recently, things that are going to specifically impede capabilities that the PRC is going to rely on to take the island, right? So that, so the PRC knows it's going to have difficulty doing so because if they cannot do it successfully, they're not going to want to do it. Uh, just, you know, a couple examples, um, demonstrate uh, and announced that you, you, if you do this, you're gonna lose all your oil. Um, people, uh, people talk about trade, right? One of the, the first thing that happens when uh, the PRC attempts to invade Taiwan is Lloyd's of London raises the insurance rate for shipping through the South China Sea and the uh, areas around Taiwan. This will drive up the cost of every container thousands of dollars. Uh, it'll also impede the shipments of oil. And people say, well, you can't just go sinking oil ships. No, I, I can't go s- just sinking uh, tankers willy-nilly. And why would I want to? Yeah, you know, the, the average uh, oil tanker, the oil in that tanker actually gets bought and sold a couple times while it's in route. All you have to do is buy it, send it to a friend, to let the PRC know they're not gonna get the materials they need if they choose to do that. Make it clear now that this is going to hurt them more and that it's, it's going to be ineffective, which is gonna harm the party. So there are actions that can be taken now to make it very clear that the situation is not in their favor. And that's the kind of thing that I would propose.
0: Okay, um, so we need to move on. Uh, Again, talking about the US foreign policy towards PRC, I sometimes struggle uh, when I try to understand it. So for example, in the national security strategy document from 2022, I read that the PRC is quote, is the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. But then you have President Biden calling Xi Jinping a dictator. And at the same time, uh, you have Blinken visiting uh, America's greatest competitor uh, that definitely wants the US out of the Indo-Pacific. And Blinken is there to have better communication with them. So to me, it looks a little bit contradictory Uh, and to me, it also looks like an example of a pragmatic and unprincipled foreign policy, and I would like to ask you if you agree with that.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, the U S has long had trouble just declaring our principles or even just choosing them and sticking to them. Uh, we tend to bounce all over the place in our policy, um, as I pointed out, quite often bouncing in response to what the PRC is doing or what they might do, uh, allowing them to determine policy. Uh, To their credit, I think that the Trump and Biden administrations have both tried a little bit to break out of this, but it's very ingrained in our policy establishment and the way people operate. So we continue to bounce around and and act based on, not not on these are our principles, these are our long-term objectives, and these are the things we're gonna do to get there, but hey, what'll work today, right? Um, and something like the, the visits to Beijing, it's long been ingrained uh, in our foreign policy process that we have to talk, right? And certainly talking is, uh, you know, is keep communication lines open and uh, we often can solve problems that way, but there are times when you can't. And you have to understand what that attempt to talk means to the other side. And in this case, that attempt to talk to Beijing, you're not gonna get anything out of it because they have no interest in meeting your interest. And if your goal is just to improve communication, then they're gonna purposely avoid that. (laughs) And they're going to treat that as proof that you have to come to them. And they've been playing that game for decades, Um, whether it be high level diplomatic visits or the establishment or reestablishment of, military-to-military exchanges. Uh, We forget that one. That was mentioned several times. Going back to the Shangri-La dialogue, where Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, after they'd already been cut off for a while, expressed a desire, we're more than willing to come talk to you, mill-to-mill exchanges, which the U.S. sees as a way to, to build understanding and avoid conflict. They see it as oh, the US wants to learn about our military and this is important to them. So it's something we can use. Right. And we're not going to let them have those mill to mill engagements until we can get something for it. We're not going to let them have this meeting until we think we can get something for it. Um, and if we do let them talk, we're only going to give them as much as we think is valuable for us getting or extracting some value out of it. So, but because we're, we're speaking a different diplomatic language, right, and a, a diplomatic language that, that prioritizes often you know, the, the process of policy over the results, we pursue that process with them while they're demanding results. And because we don't hold tight and fast to our long-term objectives, we just try to do what works, it becomes very pragmatic, it bounces around, and we often don't accomplish as much as we hope.
0: Um, so I will have to skip some questions that I had prepared because we're almost out of time. So I have two other questions. So I asked you before about your assessment of, uh, general Chinese foreign policy. So I wanted to ask a smaller question about the US foreign policy and where you see, when you, when you look at Biden's administration, and maybe Trump's administration. Do you see any principles that they are following or is it just ad hoc actions and no long-term plans, or maybe it's a mix?
1: So in our system, since 1986, uh, we publish a national security strategy, uh, which you alluded to, uh, Congress demands it. The original law said annually, we try to do it once a presidential term. And ideally, this lays out the national interests of the United States, which we will then pursue. So we have those. Now, they tend to be written somewhat broadly, but, you know, protect the uh, the lives of uh, and property of American citizens. Check. Sounds good. Right. And there's a few others that and they, they all tend to rhyme, if not look exactly exactly the same. Uh, support our values is one of them. But You know, unfortunately, strategies are often written and then put on a shelf, right? (laughs) But we're supposed to be nesting our actions within those. We have documents that we can use, um, but I think there's a couple things that happen. Uh, One, day to day, we just react, right? And we're not always uh, going back to the higher level documents and making sure everything's nesting. Second of all, sometimes those are written kind of broadly and there's some room for interpretation and our foreign policy bureaucracy is massive and not everything is cleared up the chain and make sure that it that everything uh uh is uh is linked and synchronized and so people do get get off course and the those national interests are also then mixed with ideas of cosmopolitanism and the world order and some, some conceptions of world order when it's the one that the U.S. leads and supports U.S. interests aren't bad, but, you know, oh, we need to make sure that the Europeans are happy because X, you know, we start mixing other things in and we lose sight of why are we doing this, right? Support and defend the Constitution of the United States, right? That's all officers in the, the U.S. foreign policy establishment square, support and defend uh, the Constitution of the United States. And then another problem, of course, is... That document has been denuded over time. Uh, What is considered proper action by the government has expanded broadly um, because of legislation that has not been challenged. You know, they drove a semi-truck to the Interstate Commerce Clause. They can regulate everything now. And um, so we now have, you know, large chunks of uh, the U.S. government dedicated to pushing climate change around the world. And when you have people doing that on one hand and others looking at how do we secure the, the rights and property of American citizens, there's gonna be conflicts there, right? Because the, the right answer is not the same on those. And so as we're pursuing many other things, we, we get uh, confused and we start bouncing from thing to thing. We stop focusing on this is where we're going, this is what's important. And focusing just on what we're supposed to be doing as a foreign policy
0: establishment in protecting the American citizens
1: from foreign threats.
0: Um, so my last question, which is actually follow up to this one, and I had to I, I had to ask this uh, question: If you could directly influence uh, the U.S. policy towards China, what would be the first step or steps, or maybe principles? that you would like to uh, implement?
1: Well, the very first thing I would do would be forget China.
0: Right? And the reason I say that
1: is, forget China, (laughs) ignore it, okay? Because of this problem that, that, that I think I've identified, that we are allowing China to drive our foreign policy by constantly reacting to what they do or attempting to counter their interest rather than focusing on what the US wants, right? So the very first thing we need to do is get back to defining what the world should look like for US interests and then pursuing that. Um, so frankly, I I, think, I I do China and the Indo-Pacific. Probably of the, the, the absolute best part of any policy to come out of the Trump administration was in the Indo-Pacific. Right? Less, less bad going on there than anywhere else and and some, some real good. And the policy of free and open Indo-Pacific, which wasn't even a strategy, they called it a framework, but it laid out a series of values. These are the things that are important. This is the way we want this region to look. And frankly, it's, it's not a bad vision. And I think works as a way forward to laying out U.S. foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific. It's very focused on getting what we want, not on countering others, uh, for allowing anyone who agrees with these values to come and work with us. Um, Unfortunately, it was never really implemented. It was talked about some, but not implemented. Uh, The Biden administration has picked it up and said, yes, we're sticking to this, which I think was bright. I think too often we discard something just because the last guy said it, even if it was good, but then they haven't done enough to implement it either though they are just in the past couple of months, I've heard it spoken about more, but I'm not seeing actual implementation things that would actually build a region based on free and open principles that would lead to a stronger region that then once you've done that, then you look at parties who uh counter or resist the region that you want to see. And then you figure out how to address them, right? Once you have your own vision out there, not as the starting point. And then, you know, parts of the free and open Indo-Pacific, hey PRC, this would be good for you. Oh, you're unwilling to meet the standards, well you can stay on the outside then. The rest of us are going to do great things. And I think that's that's the first step. Get your policy away from constantly reacting to them, then build what you want to build and then look at the PRC and say, okay, how do you, how do you fit into this? You want to fit in? Hey, if, if you can agree with this, we're good. If not, we're going to have issues. Um, so that's how I think we should approach
0: US policy. Scott, thank you so much uh, for being here for this interview. It was fascinating. Um, we have to wrap up. So a couple of uh, announcements. Uh, so next week's show, Uh, will be about the moral justification of the atom bomb. It will be with Ben Bayer and Nikos Sotirakopoulos. Um, please send us your questions for future, QA and a, uh, episodes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Uh, click the bell to get notifications for when we go live or post new recordings, uh, if you're watching the recording, please like, comment on it, or share the episodes to help attract new uh, viewers. And please consider doing the same if you're watching on uh, Facebook. Now, if you have questions or comments about today's episodes, or maybe you have suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at newideal@iran.org. We at We read all of your emails and reply. Most of them. So we have to wrap up. Scott, again, thank you a lot.
1: Thanks, I had a good time.
0: You've been listening to New Ideal,
1: a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to Einran.org forward slash membership.